We now move on to session two of the forum to help us picture the future facing senior workers in Singapore. We will have two presentations which are followed by an open discussion. The first speaker is Mr. Christopher Gee, who is a senior research fellow at IPS. He will provide a comparative analysis of how advanced economies have managed policies related to older workers. The second speaker is Mr. Dian Yi Lin, who is senior partner at McKinsey and managing partner at McKinsey Singapore. She will share with us how emerging technological developments can provide opportunities for older workers to remain employable. To moderate the session, we are privileged to have Dr. John Lee, Chief Executive Officer of Maybank Singapore. Maybank has received several accolades for its progressive employment practices. In particular, it was recognized for its age-inclusive policies through the Tripartite Alliance Award in 2018. So we'd like to invite uh, the panelists onto the stage. It's over to you, Dr. Lee. Thank you. Thank you. I, I probably have the easiest job of just uh, moderating the session. So good afternoon, everyone, and, and thank you, uh, the Institute of Public Policy, uh, for inviting me to uh, moderate this uh, second session, which entitles uh, Picturing the Future. Uh, so as indicated, we have two speakers. Uh, we'll have uh, Christopher Gee to uh, share with us a comparative analysis of how other advanced economies have dealt with keeping senior workers employable and employed, and then followed by Ms. Diane Yin Lee, senior partner in McKinsey, which will highlight emerging technology developments uh, can mean for positive things for senior workers and sustaining their employability. Each speaker will be given 15 minutes uh, for the presentation. But before if I pass the floor to them, allow me to uh, maybe also paint the picture uh, of the future too. Um, I think the data was shared, but I thought I would re-emphasize firstly on demography. Uh, as some of you know, the age pyramid of Singapore citizen uh, population has become uh, more top-heavy over the decade. Uh, the number of citizens aged 65 and above will almost double between now to 2030, while the number of working age citizens uh, between age 20 to 64 will decline. Uh, as a result, there will be fewer working age citizens uh, to each uh, citizen aged 65 and over. over. The ratio uh, is said to be, will fall from 4.2 uh, in 2018 to 2.4 in 2030. Second area is longevity. Uh, Singaporeans now uh, will live longer than most other nationalities, according to the latest World Health uh, statistics by World Health Organization. Uh, rank Singapore third in the world for average life expectancy behind Japan and Switzerland. Uh, the 2018, the, 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 the age uh, uh, longevity is uh, known to be 83.4 years. Uh, in another study, um, say by 2040, uh, Singapore will remain the third in the world, uh, according to the study by University of Washington, uh, Institute of Health, Metrics and Evaluation. Uh, and they predict by 2040, uh, Singaporeans will live up to 84, uh, sorry, 85.4 years, so it's almost a two-year in, uh, increase in terms of lifespan. Uh, thanks. The third uh, I just want to talk about is digitalization, uh, which obviously um, um, Diane will, will share a little bit more. Uh, I read a reason after, we all know that you know, digitalization is disrupting our life positively, and maybe some will argue also negatively. 
particularly with work uh, displacement. A recent article I read uh, uh, about AI or artificial intelligence says the following. It says that AI will take over the following jobs, uh, 10 jobs in the foreseeable future. Sales and marketing research, insurance adjuster, security guards, track, truck drivers, consumer loan underwriters, financial and sports journalism or journalists, bookkeepers and financial analysts, fruit pickers, which that's an interesting one, investment professionals, and, in, and the last one, which was also interesting, radiologists. So this is supposed to be a medical, the profession attached to that. However, they did say that AI will not be able to do the following. Psychiatrists, therapists, medical caregivers, AI researcher engineers, so self-preservation, I guess, <laughs> fiction writers, teachers, criminal defense attorney, computer scientists and engineers and scientists, and finally, which saving grace for me, managers. <laughs> uh, so, so if you can't do, manage, and your job will be preserved. So uh, with that, let me first invite Christopher uh, to, to take us through his presentation. Thank you, Christopher. Thanks, John. Um, I'm Christopher Gee. I'm a senior research fellow at the Institute. Uh, and um, I, I do longevity issues at, uh, I research longevity issues at the Institute. And uh, very glad uh, this afternoon to have the opportunity to speak about Singapore's policies on older worker inclusion uh, in comparison to some other uh, advanced economies uh, around the world. Uh, and you would have received uh, some background materials uh, in my presentation today. Uh, we'll draw out some of the key focal areas uh, from that material. Uh, and we can discuss this as well as uh, some of the other stuff that was in the, uh, uh, the, the bigger slide deck uh, in our time afterwards. Mr. Lee Pakshing uh, earlier um, already showed you some statistics on Singapore's older workers, um, uh, but, but I wanted to start with this chart. Uh, this chart shows the effective retirement age in Singapore, as well as the 36 country uh, OECD country average. This statistic, um, average effective retirement age, is an estimate of the age at which older workers will withdraw from the labor force. So the age at which older workers will withdraw from the workforce. As you can see, um, in the OECD countries as well as in Singapore, um, this trend, this statistic, has been rising quite steadily over the course of the past two to three decades. Um, and faster in Singapore's case. This is the result of positive and not so positive trends. One, people are living longer, healthier lives, uh, and consequently they're able to work longer. Also the shift in the composition of work away from manual labor obviously helps this trend. But Reforms in many other countries away from generous and fiscally um, unsustainable defined benefit pension schemes has however meant that many people uh, in some of these other countries may need to continue to work longer to ensure that they have enough to live on uh, in their extended longevity. And we're not immune from this trend in Singapore uh, as we have this older group of workers, older persons who have not been able to accumulate enough uh, retirement savings. The comparison with, with other countries in terms of our older worker policies. 
and, and there are a few things that I'd like to uh, point out in this table. But firstly, a caveat. There's no simple study of this nature that can pro properly compare different countries' uh, policies on older workers. There's differences in social, economic, political context of each country that determine these policies, and they all need to be understood uh, in full. Um, and, and what's right in one country may not necessarily apply fully uh, in another country. But uh, the most important matter, I think, to highlight uh, in this slide, in this table, uh, is the concept of retirement uh, and the concept of the retirement age, which differs across the different jurisdictions that we have presented here. In, in many countries, the concept of retirement, the retirement age, um, is framed um, almost like a ceiling. It is that age that you will work until, um, until you become entitled to a pension, to draw down your pension a zero or first pillar pension. Uh, and, and, and in Singapore, uh, we, we don't have this um, concept. In, in Singapore, we have the Retirement Reemployment Act, which uh, Mr. Lee has already taken you through. The concept of retirement in our context um, is a minimum age below which employees are protected from unfair dismissal on the grounds of age. Therefore, whilst we don't have specific age discrimination legislation as in other countries, like the UK, US, and many other European countries, the Retirement and Reemployment Act performs a similar function as an anti-age discrimination uh, legislation uh, in the workplace up to the age of 62. We've scanned the comparative data on metrics associated with older workers, and we find a number of areas in which Singapore's policies obviously have, have some room for, for improvement. Uh, they all seem consonant with, with some of the, uh, the, the key themes arising from the engagement exercises that uh, uh, Mr. Vikas Sharma uh, presented on just now. They are our policies which reflect uh, the capacity of older workers to uh, continue working. Our part-time work and flexible work arrangements, uh, and fourthly, uh, training participation uh, amongst older workers and their ability to match them uh, with the right suitable jobs for their upgraded skills. So for the rest of the presentation, uh, I will dive deeper into um, these areas of improvement along three main lines. Um, firstly, uh, enabling older workers to continue working as long as they want. Secondly, promoting the workability of uh, older workers, and I, I choose to use that term, workability, as opposed to employability. There's a small difference, um, but, but um, uh, workability will come uh, a little bit more uh, distinct as we uh, talk through some of my slides later. Uh, and then thirdly, encouraging employers uh, to retain and hire older workers. Again, uh, not dissimilar to some of the things that uh, Mr. Sharma was talking about earlier. So to start with, um, we have this progressive regime of retirement and reemployment, uh, as we've heard from uh, our speakers earlier. Our policies, however, are still established around some chronological age uh, milestones that link age with workability and willingness to work. For example, 55. This age is the um, age 
beyond which CPF contribution rates start to taper down uh, for both employers and employees. And it's also the age at which um, CPF members with the full retirement sum or the basic retirement sum with the property pledge uh, can withdraw their excess balances. Next, we have 62. Uh, the, as you, can, you have heard, the statutory minimum age of retirement. Although this is not a ceiling, many people still consider this a milestone uh, as re-employment discussions are typically triggered uh, just before this age. 65, as you all know, uh, is the CPF withdrawal eligibility age, and also until recently our re-employment age, now 67. 67 then um, is our new ceiling, our current ceiling for re-employment of older workers. Some countries like Sweden, uh, however, uh, and Denmark, have moved or are moving to a more dynamic threshold uh, for their retirement and pension eligibility. Um, and they're linking this uh, to life expectancy. So to better reflect Singaporeans living longer, healthier lives, why not consider shifting to a more effective measure of their productive potential? We could link this as the Swedes and the Danes do, um, have done, uh, to a measure like life expectancy, but I think we can do better. We have a proxy for health span, uh, the number of years that that people will live in a healthy state. Um, this is called the health adjusted life expectancy as Mr. Lee uh, pointed out earlier. This was uh, 72 for Singaporean males in 2012, uh, 75 for women. By moving to a measure like this, um, we could better reflect Singaporeans' ability to, um, to continue to work longer. Um, also, you know, many of them will have desire to continue to work longer, just to live fulfilling lives. Um, and, and link this desire, the capacity to work longer, uh, with um, a measure, a good measure of their productive potential. I calculate that if um, the health-adjusted life expectancy were to rise um, until 2030, um, as it has done over the past two decades, by 2030, we could have an extra 350,000 person years of additional healthy life years uh, for Singaporeans aged 65 and above. This, you know, just, so it's 350,000 person years of productive potential. Um, this is equivalent to 12% of our current labor force. We touched on the subject of CPF contribution rates. Um, they, as we now, we all know, uh, taper down after the age of 55, so as to preserve older worker employability. But this is, again, arbitrary in nature. Uh, it's, you know, limited by a chronological age uh, milestone. And again, I wonder whether uh, we should consider how we can make this a little bit less age-anchored, a bit less mandated, a driver of the total compensation of older workers um, those over the age of 55, and instead shift this to a better measure of worker productivity over their lifespan. So, you know, have proper conversations which, uh, with, with workers in different industries to, uh, again, um, discuss how we, um, you know, keep their, um, you know, their contributions, their, their total compensation uh, matched with their productivity. Whilst um, Singapore doesn't do too badly uh, in comparison to some OECD countries on the prevalence of older workers uh, in part-time employment, 
um, clearly, as we've heard earlier as well, uh, we can do better uh, in comparison to countries like Netherlands and Denmark, UK, Japan. Uh, all of these countries have uh, more 55 to 64-year-olds in, in part-time employment. But part-time work um, proposition is, you know, the shift in particular, uh, the transition from full-time to part-time work um, is, is quite a tricky thing. Uh, and in practice, um, this, this is um, quite hard to pull off. Um, the, um, uh, the statistics, some research from overseas has shown that, um, that, that, that it is, um, uh, you know, the, there's some asymmetry in the bargaining position of, uh, of, of part-time workers in particular, and you know, um, Conway and Sturgis um, showed that, um, that there's some exploitation amongst uh, UK part-time workers uh, in terms of their unpaid uh, work, for, uh, sorry, unpaid, uh, on their unpaid, not paying for um, overtime work. Um, we have in Singapore um, education and um, enforcement uh, uh, of, of, you know, the, um, the part-time worker protections uh, under work right, um, and, but, but it really still requires quite a bit of um, employer-employee cooperation to kind of think through the steps by which you could essentially transition from a full-time job to a part-time job. Uh, it involves job redesign, as we'll talk about later, um, and also you know, new ways of supervising and managing uh, part-time workers who have previously been in, in, uh, in full-time employment. Flexible work arrangements. Um, uh, Singaporeans um, you know, have said that they do prefer um, workers of all ages um, say that they do prefer um, to work um, in a more uh, flexible manner, but uh, the, the stats shown, uh, this is a study from Randstad Work Monitor um, earlier this uh, last year, and um, it shows that actually the, the larger majority of Singaporean workers still um, uh, work in a very traditional manner uh, as compared to their, their preferences. Um, and, and, you know, again, the same statistic, uh, again, in comparison to other countries, we, we rank higher uh, in terms of the proportion of employees who would prefer to work from home or, or some other location, but, but um, uh, you know, their current job doesn't allow them the flexibility to do so. Um, and whilst we do have um, arrangements to, to encourage employers to offer uh, flexible work arrangements, um, you know, it, it, there's, there's, you know, as of early last year, um, a relatively low uh, take-up rate uh, for, for these uh, incentives. Uh, the experience in other countries um, is, is uh, you know, maybe instructive. Uh, Denmark, Iceland um, allow uh, employees to um, you know, uh, shorten work hours. In, in Denmark in particular, they have this idea of, a, of the senior job concept where um, you know, it's, it's a bit more of a norm uh, for, for workers, all the workers, to negotiate um, uh, yeah, shorter work hours or more flexible work arrangements. In, in, um, uh, and moving on to skills training, uh, the, the, the Singapore landscape for worker training at all ages has clearly improved uh, in the last few years. Uh, skills Future, uh, a lot of the initiatives that we've seen uh, in worker training um, across all ages um, has come through. Um, I, I won't go through all of this uh, in, in, in detail uh, in the interest of time. Um, but, but what we do find is that older worker participation uh, in training is still markedly lower uh, than uh, in, in, in many of the other advanced economies. 
Uh, and, and some of this might be generationally uh, sort of uh, dependent. Uh, Mr. Sharma, again earlier, mentioned uh, this, this idea that you know, uh, workers with only a limited time before they retire uh, may not uh, you know, kind of uh, have that much incentive to reinvest uh, in their own human capital. Uh, but, but we do find, again, uh, examples of, of, of some you know, quite um, interesting initiatives uh, across uh, the globe. Uh, Denmark's got this job rotation scheme where the government subsidizes and finds uh, alternative employees uh, to cover uh, those workers that have gone uh, for, for, for training. Uh, and in, in the Netherlands, they have this Evaring um, certificate. Uh, I'm not sure whether I pronounced that right, but, but it's, it's a certification of the new skills that uh, the workers uh, have, have now uh, obtained. I won't go through some of this, but maybe uh, focus on, on, on Japan's senior work program. And I think the key thing amongst this um, is, the, uh, is the idea that um, there is an element of matching uh, contained within this uh, senior work program. So that um, the uh, program allows for the workers to be matched up with uh, business associations and potential employers. Uh, in Singapore, we've got um, heaps of, of uh, job redesign grants. And again, in comparison to other countries where um, job redesign is, is a little bit more uh, based on, on um, encouragement by the government. In Singapore, we have um, uh, you know, these um, uh, grants under the WorkPro um, scheme. Um, but again, I, I just want to focus on, on this um, workability model. Um, in the reminder to attend this event, um, you were sent a link to participate in this, uh, in this uh, survey. Um, and this is a model uh, adopted primarily in, in um, uh, Finland, uh, came out of Finland in the first place, uh, and also in Australia. Uh, and it, it really uh, intends to recognize the social and environmental factors that impact on a worker's ability to continue working. Um, and it's not necessarily designed just for older workers, it's for workers of all ages, I think. Uh, and it considers four uh, key factors that contribute to this workability, um, you know, and, and, and you see them there, work values, competence, and health. And again, if you did the um, exercise, the instrument is there. Um, if you didn't do it, um, you can still take the, the workability index and, and check it out for yourselves. But you know, here are some of the scores that, um, that we received, and you see this range. Um, the lowest score is seven, uh, the highest score is for, uh, 49. Uh, but, you know, it, it, this, this instrument is designed to give you um, some indication as to how much support um, each individual worker uh, may need um, in terms of um, sustaining their capacity to continue working. Uh, but it will also help HR, uh, it will also help companies, employers to identify teams where uh, you need this job redesign, you need these um, you know, new initiatives um, to, to sustain not just the individual worker, but also their their groups, their teams, that, that you, know, you can restructure your business in its entirety to, um, to you know, uh, improve not just the, the lot of the worker, but, but also the business as a whole. So on here, I, my time's up. Um, these are the points that I, I, I think we should be thinking about. Uh, we clearly need to balance the interests of both employees and employers. It, it, it's clearly a, a, a tripartite, um, you know, including the government, uh, sort of uh, um, uh, environment. Um, we did make some proposals with respect to flexibility in terms of thinking about um, fixed retirement ages and reemployment ages. Uh, we talked about flexible work arrangements, uh, including part-time work job matching and, and, and the assessment of workability. 
um, and job redesign and, and, and how uh, we can achieve this. Thank you. Thank you, Christopher. <laughs> Diane. Good afternoon. Thank you. Now, I'm going to start where John started, the future of work. Now, whenever you talk or read anything about the future of work or articles, etc., you end up with a very apocalyptic answer that machines will take over the world and therefore there's no reason for us to exist anymore, right? And John started to reel off some of the occupations that will basically cease to exist, right? What my colleagues in the McKinsey Global Institute have done is actually do a bottom-up analysis and try and dispel some of this, right? Because when you take jobs and you break them down into activities, activities can actually be replaced by technology, be it automation or AI. But what we found was it's actually very hard to replace an entire job wholesale. Right? So that's the first message I'd like to, to leave us with. So, when we put up charts like this, that we say, here are the sectors that have an automation potential, it means that activities within that sector have the potential to be automated. And you'll see, in some cases, it is significant. And as John was saying, if you are a teacher in the educational services, it's less so, right? Now, this is a very macro view. Then we look at the jobs underlying it. About 60% of jobs we've identified, actually one-third of the activities can actually be automated. You'll be pleased to know, John, as a CEO, about a third of your role can actually be potentially automated. By the way, most of us, when we break down the, those activities, are actually quite pleased because it's the really grindy, boring stuff. Right? That we actually we didn't want to do, that we'd be happy if a machine did for us, and then I can redeploy my time elsewhere. Right? So the first misnomer that I wanted to correct is there are very few jobs that can be holes, you know, eliminated. Very few. Right? There are some which actually over the years have started to reduced anyway in the agricultural space. A colleague of mine likes to tell the story, today no one um, will ever see an ad to be a telephone operator because that went out a long time ago, right? But very few um, jobs can wholeheartedly be replaced. And by the way, this is not a new phenomenon. This has been going on in time since the Industrial Revolution. Okay, so first thing is, very few jobs can be completely replaced. Secondly, all this analysis is done on technological potential. Right? This is a lot of smart people matching activities with technology. When you look at behavior and adoption rates, it changes this picture quite considerably. Right? So while technically you can have a certain amount of activities replaced by, let's say, 2050, we expect it'll probably take twice as long because it takes time and cost to get these technologies to be deployed. Right? Now, I'd like everyone to just look at the bottom left-hand corner as well. 
there will be adoption of some of these new technologies. But I'd like us to view that positively, particularly as we talk about older workers. These are all the painful things that often are manual or physical that a machine or a technology can now help with. And actually the biggest beneficiary of this is often the older worker. Right? So that's the first thing around the future of work. Right? So this apocalyptic sci-fi world of robots all turning up, you know, will remain in sci-fi land for a little bit uh, longer. A more helpful way that we'd like to suggest we look at the future of work is less about automation and technology, about skills. And I've chosen skills also because skills irrespective of age, right? And we've done uh, analysis, we've taken different categories of skills, we've broken them down across a whole set uh, of this. And I think this is interesting. If we look at the skill categories, over time, where, what types of skills will become less important and what types of skills will become more important? This is where we go back to John's list, right? So things which are physical and manual, robots, some robots can do. The good news is, by the way, robots have very bad fine motor skills. So there's still a lot of physical and manual fine motor skills that robots cannot replace. Basic cognitive skills. So this is problem solving, critical thinking, right? Yes, a little bit more kind of basic stuff. The higher cognitive skills, this was what John was talking about. How do I take three pieces of information that don't perfectly make sense and make a decision around that? How do I make a management decision around that? That's hard. A machine's not going to help you do that. You'll see a massive increase on social and emotional skills. The one triumph of the human type over the machine, right? This is your therapist. These are healthcare workers. These are teachers. These, by the way, are your colleagues and team players who help you through tough times, right? And of course, the last is as we all have from the day we started P1, we all also will have to build our technological skills. And it's expected that we would see a huge leap there. Right? And if you start then to say, let me look at the sectors where automation is possible, but let me add where are the skills that are needed in that, there will be some sectors where we will see more jobs, and there will be other sectors where there will be less jobs. Right? So, not a, a surprise, some of the very routine, um, repetitive, more manual, you'll see a decline, but a massive increase in technology professional, care providers, etc. By the way, most, if you are a parent whose child is taking PSLE or O-levels, this is normally the page you want to take so that you can tell your kid which courses to sign up for in university to increase likelihood of a job. This is the most common question I get asked. By the way, the answer to what is the highest growing job category is unfortunately other. We actually don't know. There are jobs that your children will do in the future that you cannot even begin to imagine because they don't exist today. Right? 
So that's the future of work, right? So that apocalyptic world, let's put it aside. It's a much more nuanced world that we are up against. And let's talk a little bit about the aging workforce, right? How do they fit into this? We talked a little bit about the different types of skills. This is just a different cut, uh, some of which are more needed, some less needed. We've broken them down, and you can look at all the different sub-skills within it and where do you need humans, etc. I wanted to pause here a little bit because we've all had to experience this. We used to have a lot of focus on technical or hard skills, but we expect that in time, when you're training for skills, we're going to overvalue more meta skills, so the ability to learn, lifelong learning, softer human skills around creativity, interaction, EQ. And the reality is the average person joining the workforce today will likely have to reskill anywhere from two to four times on the technical knowledge because we are working in a world that is changing, right? So if, you're an, if you are an educator, we want to be educating on meta and soft skills because to be honest, the rest you will learn how to use Google and figure out, right? Now, back to our slightly older workers, right? What are some of the traits? And this is a little bit of a, a survey of um, some of our uh, clients across the world. I think we often forget, and in some of the, the research, people focus a lot on all the things that older workers cannot do. Let's focus on what older workers are better at, right? Because with age and experience, a couple of things come your way, right? Number one is, you know, much more focused, a bigger sense of loyalty. And in today's world, when you're up against millennials who are work looking for their next job when they start day one on one job, that becomes much more highly uh, valued. A very strong work ethic, right? Networks, because back, remember again, back to this stronger EQ skills, the ability to understand networks and interpersonal skills, build relationships, right? And lastly, with experience, of course, the ability to mentor and to teach and to share uh, their, their knowledge, right? What I wanted to do then was to say, where can we draw some inspiration from? Right? And I've just picked three examples from companies across the world who've really embraced the older worker. Right? What we have found, if we poll any CEO today, three out of four of them will tell me that talent and the scarcity of talent is my number one problem. One out of four will say that's my number two problem. Right? So let's start with that frame. An example that you wouldn't kind of immediately come to mind, Goldman Sachs, right? I mean, the ultimate kind of, you know, in investment bankers, not particularly kind of, you don't think about an inclusive working environment, right? But in a world where talent is scarce, right? What have they done? They've actually gone back to their pool of sometimes alumni, often people who've left the workplace and brought them back. Right? A large proportion of this just nature of the industry has actually been too skewed towards women right? who have tended to opt out of the, you know, the slightly more intense work environment. So they started a returnship program. Right? 
a way to get older, more mature workers back in, right? Now, it'd be naive of them to say, oh, just come back, it'll be all good, we'll give you a machine off to work, right? To the point which I think other speakers have talked about, it does require a little bit of reskilling, right? And it's in the interest of employers to do some of that reskilling. It is incumbent upon the worker coming in to be open to some of that reskilling. And actually, they've had great success with this. Right? That's one example. I pulled it out for not somewhere where you would have thought uh, inclusive work environment. Second one, CVS. For those of you who don't know, this is a US uh, healthcare company. Uh, they're known for their retail pharmacy chains. They actually took the older worker as a strength. They actually had, um, at this time, this uh, case that was written maybe a year and a half ago now, um, that more of their full, half of their full-time employees were over 50, right? But remember, these guys are in the healthcare space. How do I use that as a strength? Because if I look at the demographics, my consumers are matching the same demographic pattern. How do I use the fact that I want to actually increase my proportion of older workers because they will be an asset for me against a matching consumer base, right? So very similarly, they took very specific actions to how do I now find these workers, recruit them, train, etc., right? Um, and that has worked very well uh, for them uh, as well. Then I thought we'd be remiss if we didn't look at a manufacturing example, right? BMW, they actually did this. They actually had one of their production lines start with older workers. When they ran that line versus a standard sort of production line, the line with older workers actually was less productive. What did they do? They said to the workers, tell me how I help you, right? How do I create a work environment that enables you to be productive? This is job redesign, right? So they actually had the employees do the job redesign for themselves, right? Because they know where the pain points are. They were able to make suggestions on what support they needed. And as a result of that, they'll find that they can perform as well as any other worker. And here now, they've got the benefits that we talked about of an older worker, right? More loyal, more experienced, and as productive, right? So just three examples for, otherwise, you know, we're in the world of theory of yes, we'd like it, but actually, there are companies doing it out there. Why are they doing that? Not because they're, you know, good intention, wonderful policy makers for the good of the world. It's an economic and business imperative. Talent is scarce. And if you aren't proactive about this, someone else will be, and you'll lose out, right? So this concept that how do we, if we do believe that talent is scarce, how do we from a mindset and practices perspective take advantage and really leverage the segment uh, of older workers? And you've seen some examples here. The last thing I wanted to leave you with was um, Generations is McKinsey's nonprofit initiative. Uh, they actually work in partnership with uh, Skills Future here in Singapore. And they have a very simple objective. 
how do I help reskill? And we've got, a, we've got now programs running across, I think, the US, Spain, two countries in Africa, um, uh, the Middle East, uh, Latin America, and now here in Singapore, whereby we've partnered with education providers, with employers, with government, in this case, Skills Future, um, and with individual employees over a period of sometimes as short as six weeks, usually closer to 12 or 18 weeks, to take cohorts of current workers and reskill them, right? Often for uh, new technology, so data, data scientists, uh, you know, um, uh, digital marketing, things like that, right? So, you know, we've talked a lot about two things which I think are recurring themes around the need for job redesign, which actually we've seen as possible. Uh, the second around reskilling, which of course will have to come hand in hand, which we also think uh, is possible. So let me leave you with that. Thank you very much. Thank you, Diane. Before I open up for, for, for some discussion around this uh, topic, um, I'm sure if not all of you have seen it, then you must see it the movie called The Intern. Um, Robert De Niro being the older worker and Anne Hathaway being in, working in this new world. And the dynamics of the two individuals uh, you know, develop over, over the movie. Um, and I think that's really what the future to me uh, uh, is. It's the fact that I think we cannot longer look at work jobs in the manner that we have looked in the past. I think that's really some of the discussion uh, we need to have. So maybe before I open the, the floor for discussion, um, if I could uh, maybe kickstart the discussion uh, by asking the uh, two individuals uh, the first questions. Uh, there are microphones, so as you frame your questions for, for the individuals, um, you, know, um, um, you know, please, when you come up, uh, state your name and, and, then, and then your question. Uh, but let me kickstart by, by asking this question. Uh, following from, from the two presentations, uh, it's clear, as I said, uh, what we probably need to discuss is what are the challenges and issues that need to be discussed to allow for longer and older employability. So, you know, we, we talk about jobs and all that, but really, you know, are we framing the issues and therefore discussing those issues appropriately? Maybe I'll get uh, Christopher to start off. So it's, um, as we, uh, we've already discussed, um, it's not an easy task. Um, the, the rapid nature of Singapore's workforce and population aging, um, you know, does present us with a particular challenge. Um, and, uh, you know, society takes a while to adjust to this mm -hmm. transition. Um, we've become accustomed to the three-stage uh, life cycle, right? So you, you study, you go into work, uh, and then you retire. And it's seen as a marker of success if you can control your timing into uh, these uh, different uh, work, uh, life stages. Um, and we valorize this whole idea of, of a, a comfortable um, retirement, um, long, um, well, happy retirement. But um, it, the reality is a bit more complex than that. Uh, and as we've heard again earlier on uh, in, in our session already thus far, um, it, it's, you know, the actual practical transition into, um, uh, you know, the um, you know, uh, retirement 
and not working or working in a different way or mm. working productively but unpaid, mm. right? So there's a, there's a whole spectrum uh, mm -hmm. of, of preferences. There's a whole spectrum of, uh, of, of capabilities mm -hmm. uh, that, that need to be catered for. It's not easy uh, and it, it, you, know, you need to go on the front line um, researchers like myself, you know, find it easy to say, you know, uh, the, the, the headline things, but, but actually um, it, it's really hard and painstaking, the work that needs to be done, because it's, it's individual by individual, mm -hmm. employer by employer, mm -hmm. and society at large has to pull together. Um, but if I had to say one thing, uh, I think we really need to move away from these chronological age markers, yeah. these fixed ages where we say, you're young, and then you're no longer young. Mm. You're old, mm. right? So I think, you know, if I had to think of only one thing, mm. we, we've got to be a bit more flexible in the way we define ourselves as young, not so young, and old. I mean, John, I think we, we have in many ways talked a lot about the issues, right? As, as Christopher started to say, some of this is societal and quite entrenched, right? So I do think that the, the mindset issue, be it at an employee, employer, and society is probably the most difficult to break, right? Because we all do have expectations of what one is expected to do. We have expectations of what counts as success, right? Uh, and therefore, you know, we have, we have, we have set ourselves up for, for that path, right? So I do agree uh, with where Christopher is, is going. And I think we do need to reframe the discussion and change the expectation that we will have a phases of life linked to skills and new skills as opposed to a chronological, I start A, B, C, D, E, right? So, and that's kind of where I like to shift the world towards, right? So, so, so actually, just, just on that, um, you know, just talk, talking about new jobs and all that, if you, you won't be surprised if you ask some of the young people about some of the jobs that they like to do. And, and this, to me, was a re revelation a few months ago when I asked that, is to be an e-gamer. Mm. <laughs> right? So the job never existed in the past, right. but now you can actually be an e-gamer and make a lot of money yeah. from it. So just to give you a perspective <laughs> of how jobs have changed. Um, any question from the floor? If, if not, I've got a few other questions, but I thought I'll open up. Please, the gentleman. Please state your name and, and your question. Is it on? Someone, maybe? Yes. Is this on? Yep, Are we on? Yeah. I'm a nobody, but Happy New Year, everybody. Um, I was a bit uh, concerned at the beginning of the presentation by the MOM and the consultant because it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy and the bias from MOM is a very dangerous bias in the new world. Huh? But I was very happy to listen to Chris and should I call you DM? Yes, that's fine. Or DY. DY. Extremely positive and highly geared towards the future, not the past. Um, you see, uh, I have a simple suggestion to MOM. The mindset got to be changed. The government's mindset got to be changed. You should not call yourself MOM anymore because you say manpower. Basically, it's man and power, right? Lifting power. 
you should call yourself. I was thinking of MOT for Thailand, but then I said I had to compete with transport, so I said MOR, Ministry of Resources, because Singapore may be short of national natural natural resources, no oil, no gas, nothing, right? But if we know how to develop the best resource on earth, human resources, we're on to something good, yeah? So, so I, I so, think MOM may really want to think about it. Maybe could I get asked for your question, yeah. Now, the future is already here, and it was here early on. i give a very simple example. Huh? Uh, all the presentation, there's one group people completely missed out, the designer, the creative people, the architects. Now, i give you an example of three architects. Lu Khan never designed a building until he was 61. And he built some of the best buildings on earth in America. Okay? Well, closer to home, Jeffrey Bauer was a successful lawyer. He gave up. He went to architecture school when he was age 50. He's the best architect of Sri Lanka in the history of Sri Lanka. Right? And the third one. Uh, some of you may be familiar with Falling Water, the famous house, right? Now, the story is that Wright designed the building in one morning at the age of late 70s. Well, there are two ways to look at it. He actually got his people to draw the design in one morning. Sorry, I really want to get to yeah, yeah, yeah. No. So, so what I'm saying is basically is that the future is not in manpower, the productivity. The future is in creativity and capabilities, employability, not employment. Thank you. Thank you. Don't think there's a question there. So, <laughs> gentlemen, yes, please. Uh, John Elliott, I would like to say uh, I appreciate very much Christopher Gee's emphasis on flexibility because it has long seemed to me obvious that uh, age is just a proxy for other things. It's a proxy for health. It's a proxy for uh, intellectual ability or for, for physical strength. So you need to have different ages at which different employments become uh, incapable of continuing and retraining or change of work is necessary. But I noticed uh, that, uh, Diane, you, in your second uh, example, you mentioned, I think it was CVS, had no mandatory retirement age. Now, I like the idea of no mandatory retirement age. I like the idea that nobody should ever be able to say to you, at this age, you have to stop working. We don't care how competent you are, you have to stop. But it brings a great difficulty, as I see it, which is that you have to tell people who can't do the job, you can't do the job. And I wonder if you could enlighten us as to how you approach the problem of telling workers, employees, that they are not actually able to continue if you don't have a mandatory retirement age. Because I'd like to, say, to see this no mandatory retirement age, but it has that problem. Could you comment on that, please? I'm, I'm happy to take that. Um, uh, let me use McKinsey as an, as, as an example, right? Uh, as many of you know, we have an up or out policy. Uh, one of the, probably the toughest performance uh, environments uh, uh, for, for a corporate, right? Where if you are no longer performing, you are expected uh, to leave, right? Um, which most people think is incredibly mean uh, and harsh. But actually, it's one of our core values and one which we think makes us quite special and one that our 
firm members actually hold very dear to. Because when we say you are not up to a particular job, it does not mean you are not up to any job. And I think that's important, right? And what at least I have seen we've started to do and more successful companies have do is to think about which components of a job are you capable of doing? How do we play to your strengths and leverage those strengths? In some cases, move you to roles. In some cases, move you to other roles in other firms, etc. And focus on building that as opposed to all the things that you are not able to do. Now, to be very specific to your question, you can only do this if you have an open culture of feedback, of transparency, and an objective way to measure performance. Right? So some of those are enablers which do need to be in place, and a culture of honesty and caring to say, you don't enjoy this, you're clearly unhappy here, it is not playing to your skills, let us find you something that will. Chris. And, and again, uh, I'd, I'd like to just point uh, everybody to um, that workability index. You know, that, that, that's a starting point in the discussions that uh, employers and employees should be having regularly throughout their, their working time. And, and, and that gives you a guide as to um, you know, the kind of the, the work capacity and the work desire of each individual worker. And then combined, you can get a sense, an early um, sign of potential problems or where it's really swimmingly great. But where you might have creeping problems, um, you can then start to early identify individual workers or uh, teams that, that you know, are finding it difficult to um, cope with, with the challenges of the tasks uh, ahead of them. Uh, and, and, and do aggressive job redesign. Um, and, and maybe re-employ them in other um, uh, roles. So, so you know, I think having that kind of instrument or having that kind of capacity to understand what your workers are thinking about, what their capacities are. I think you know, it, it's the hard work that needs to be done. Uh, it's not easy, as I said earlier, but it, it needs to be done. A any other questions from the floor? Uh, maybe the gentleman in the front first. Um, Gerard E. I totally subscribe to what I've heard. My question to you is, how many corporations in Singapore have a HR department that can handle all this type of job? Developing the appraisal system, understanding training. You go to most corporation, training means PowerPoint, Microsoft Word, but never relevant to the job that they are thinking about. So can we really solve the problem if we don't address the, 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 the lack of HR capabilities? I think the answer is quite obvious, in my opinion. <laughs> uh, and I think if I could, uh, and before I let Chris and Diane comment, uh, certainly in Maybank, as I said, we did have to put in the effort. It wasn't something that you just evolve into. It's something that you have to put in the effort. Uh, so, so age inclusiveness in our workplace practices have to be something that you, you want to adopt and, and therefore put things around it to make it happen. Uh, so I think there are effort that employers need to make to say that we're going to want to do this. So, so you're totally right in that sense. In terms of 
how you include them, what kind of training, what kind of uh, transition you want to make. All that needs to, to be thought through. Sorry, yeah. Sorry, I think. The Sorry, the point I'm trying to make, employees as business owners obviously is interested, but won't have the knowledge or the skill set to address this issue, and neither do they have a HR department, or at least okay. a proper HR department. So who is going to handle it? So should it be an agency, or MOM, or whoever it is that goes up to actually address the core of the issue, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it, it, um, yeah it, it's a tricky one. Um, you know, the private sector, um, individual businesses, right? Uh, you know, should, um, you know it, it's hard to uh, mollycoddle all of them uh, to kind of, you know, implement all of these uh, far-sighted things, uh, particularly at a time when, when everybody's rushed off their feet, right? Um, we're just, you know, all so busy in our daily work, um, trying to keep up with the changes in the, in the economy that, that, you know, many businesses, particularly small ones, uh, just don't have that bandwidth, that time to kind of, you know, do the things that are needed, uh, as we've discussed already. Um, but, um, I, you know, one example that, that uh, I, I raised just now, um, the job rotation scheme uh, in Denmark, um, may point to one uh, mechanism by which we can do this. So collectively, we appreciate that this is a problem. Um, you know, we, we subsidize or we, we give grants and, and, and enable the capacity for uh, employers to have a little bit of breathing room, right? So employ a temporary worker to cover for workers that you know, need to do retraining, right? And, and, and have a scheme whereby you encourage, uh, give you know, businesses and employers that, that flex room, that, that, that capacity, that buffer just do the things that um, uh, are necessary. Uh, yeah, not easy. Gerard, so, um, I think you are, you, you, you've hit on a, in, in a, an important point, right? If you allow market forces to play out, what would you expect? Employees vote with their feet, right? And we've seen that, right? You've seen the startups really been a, where there is a lot more attention paid to the nature of a job, responsibility, pathway, etc., really pull talent from places where uh, talent is not managed and, and nurtured, right? Um, you will see uh, C-suites evolve, right? We, we advocate what we call a G3, that you really need a CEO, a strategic CFO, which Singapore, I would argue, is quite good at, and a strategic, what we call CHRO, right? Because you need a combination of the three to really guide companies through today's very tumultuous, uh, much more globalized world. Some companies have risen to that challenge, a lot more so, and I think you see it in the results, and others have not. And, you know, market forces, I suspect, will prevail. I think it's as uh, many of the charts have shown, the policymakers here have actually offered more money than in most places in terms of grants and opportunities to support companies to do that in terms of job redesign, training, etc. Right? I think it becomes incumbents on companies to take advantage of that. Uh, the lady, I think, has a question. Yeah, please. 
Good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon. My name is Esther. Uh, I like the idea of the uh, returnship, which is excellent. I just want to know that the Institute of Policy Studies, will they have these uh, policies being implemented for the Singapore startup companies uh, as one of the uh, essentials uh, to the point of uh, retraining, returnship, returnship, and things like that for them before they can actually uh, start a company. Uh, I, I guess maybe from, from the foundation of starting up a company to build in this culture, we'll be able to uh, get older workers to continue working because I understand also we have a gap where the, uh, the, the younger millennials are not as faithful and loyal to the companies. Am I correct? So do they have such policies for the uh, Singapore companies to build a culture? So a, a build a culture of employing yes. older? Yeah, I, I think that the, 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 the that culture. encouragement is there and the policies yes, are there. Yes, yeah? yes, Correct. yes. So I think it's up to individual organization to Correct. see how they want to take that forward. Correct. All right. Yeah. Um, working from a, a, a foreign company before, I noticed that every company, foreign company, they have their own very distinct culture, like the Japanese, they have their own distinct culture. The Europeans and the uh, American or the US. So if we can uh, create this distinct culture in the Singaporean climate or companies, I think may, maybe we'll be able to continue this uh, younger generation to the older generations in the continual workforce. That's my perspective. Yeah. Right. Thank you for your input. Please. Hi, this is uh, Roslyn from Tafet. I just want to respond to Jared's uh, question about um, you know uh, whether or not uh, it's, it's, it's really important. I do agree that it's very important to have the skill sets, to have the resources, to have the toolkits to build a age-inclusive workplaces. Um, we, we at Tafet, we do provide that resources. There are many agencies who actually provide such support. Uh, companies that are too small, who really have to concentrate on their businesses, who do not have proper HR um, and also um, expertise to, to do the work. There are also shared services that they can tap on. So um, in terms of the resources, where do you get it, where the assistance, where the advice, where the toolkits, etc., I think there will be uh, people who are able to help, and Tafat will be such agency. We have an age-inclusive portal, lots of resources there. We also provide advice. Uh, we also work with companies. Uh, we are not experts, but we do, uh, we do provide uh, in terms of resources. Where can you get help, consultancies, etc., share services, etc., uh, to help you to go and build a age-inclusive workplace because it's very important for us to really tap on the, um, the older workers. In Tafet, we also do a lot of encouragement. We have campaigns to, to, to sort of promote the, 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 the value that older workers bring to a workplace and how uh, employers should tap on this uh, pool of talent. Thank you. Uh, Chris, you wanted this. Yeah. Just, just to follow on, um, and uh, maybe I'll also address this to, to Rosalind. Um, you know, um, the, the idea here is, um, you know, yes, there are a lot of, of, of schemes and, and programs, um, but, but you know, as we've seen with, with the flexible work arrangements, um, you know, the job, uh, the work pro uh, scheme, uh, 
take up is not perhaps what we would desire, and, and, and you know, the complaints still uh, remain on the ground that, that it's really difficult, uh, you know, and this is not happening. Um, so my, my question back to you, I guess, um, you know, is if I may, um, you, know, uh, you know, how do we go to the last mile? Um, you know, how do we actually go um, to the companies themselves, to each individual worker um, on the retraining front, right? Um, how do we do that? And um, uh, again, it, it's, uh, you know, clearly I appreciate it. it's not easy. Um, uh, one of the things that I, I guess um, we, we can consider um, is, uh, uh, I apologize, it slipped my mind, but, but I think, it, you know, it's just the, the, the last mile uh, that we, we really need to focus on. Uh, that, that would be the point I would make. Yep. And may, may I suggest not to use this forum as a response? Um, <laughs> maybe you all can have an offline conversation and have a... Uh, so, this lady, please. Kanwal Jit Soin, former nominated member of parliament. I'd like to make two points. One is that more than, uh, at, uh, at least one in three of our workers is over the age of 50. And many people consider 50 as older workforce. So we are not talking of a minority. We are talking of one third of our workforce that is over the age of 50. So it should be a pressing concern. It's not something, and Younger workers need reskilling, so do workers over 50. So it is not, it's not some, a problem that is particular to older workers. Um, uh, uh, to be brief, I'll go, go to my second point. In many countries, women often return to the workforce when children are older. And they have, we have what's called a, the M-shaped uh, labor force for women. But in Singapore, I think about 400,000 women of working age are outside the workforce, and this includes older women, because of caring responsibilities. So here, and that is tied not only with looking after older people, also with the education system and how children need to be looked after. So I think you have to have, this is not just pertaining to MOM, it has to pertain to how we provide uh, care for older workers, care for, I mean, older people, how we provide care for disabled, so we can free women, older women, to get back into the workforce. So it has to be a whole of government conversation and not let the poor MOM just handle it all on their shoulders. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, any questions or comments? Um, we've got about 15 more minutes, or if not, we can, you know, have an early break. Yes, please, lady over there. Good afternoon. My name is Kalyani Mehta, and uh, I, have, uh, I have an academic position. I'd like to ask how our forum here, together with the distinguished speakers, intend to uh, increase the part-time flexible work arrangements in Singapore, because as uh, Christopher pointed out, that's an area where we need to improve. So really, uh, in terms of the outcome of having a forum today, 
I think perhaps we could ask the speakers now as well as later how the government can do this, and I totally echo what Kani said. It cannot be just the MOM. So it's got to be SNAF, it's got to be NTUC, it's got to be uh, other bodies as well, universities and so on, working together to offer these opportunities, particularly for people who have been out of the workforce and would like to come back to the workforce. I would also like to know if anybody has any statistics on job sharing, because uh, just from my observation, I think job sharing is not that popular here in Singapore. Somehow employers are not very comfortable with the idea of job sharing, but perhaps we could do more of that. Uh, I know in some countries it really works out quite well. One person consistently comes in the morning and one person consistently comes in the afternoon and they take care of that job. So if there's any statistics, I'd like to see some of those. Thank you. Th thanks for sharing. I, th I think that's a very good point. Uh, and I think to Christopher's comment around the part-time employment and I was just having a conversation with someone just this morning around the fact that to the point of looking at your life not in three stages, you know, uh, uh, in fact, between working and then retirement, there's a transition where you just work less because you know it's, it's not a binary thing, zero one or, or one zero in this case. Uh, it's, I, I think you know something that, that should probably be taken. I don't think we have an answer today. It's probably something that we need to explore further as to how to make that more effective, uh, and then uh, so to speak. Yeah. That's your. Yeah. I would I would add just one thing. Um, this question of uh, flexible part-time freelance, right, is a is a theme that we're seeing globally uh, across the world. Um, in some markets, it is a uh, a women issue, but in many markets, it's a really a millennial issue because people want flexibility. Uh, some people have very specific skills that they want to deploy in a much more uh, flexible manner. The one thing that uh, we, we do see the beginnings of success for things like this to take off is uh, online job platforms, right? Um, and some of you who are, if you're in the freelance world, you will see today, even in Singapore, there are portals whereby, uh, you know, let's say project managers, for example, right, will say, actually, I want you know, to work on a project for X number of months and then I'm kind of done, right? And we found that the use of some of these technologies where you can create a much more transparent marketplace between supply and demand has, has actually uh, helped take off uh, this, this concept and allows uh, flexibility. It allows companies when they need niche-specific skills uh, to not to have to commit to kind of long-term uh, employment, uh, it allows companies also, as they go through kind of more uh, disruptive moments in, in their time, to be able to kind of, you know, take on uh, contract workers, uh, etc. So that's one comment I'd just make. I, I agree. It's I, one I, thing, agree. I, I think, yeah. I think um, in the case of Singapore, while people talk about the gig culture, right? People want to just do a certain task or yeah. do a certain gig job economy. And, and, and leave. I don't think that, that it's the, the economy is able to support that kind of culture in, in a holistic way. I yeah. think there's some work that needs to be done around that. that. Sorry, a gentleman in front had a, had a question. I'm um, Alex Melchers from SNEF. Um, in tripartite, but actually in Singapore at large, we always had a balance between 
um, solving problems um, by, with legislation and sometimes with more promotional efforts, mindset change. When you look at the topics, the big topics that we are addressing right now here, and as we also have the Institute of Policy Studies, which are the areas where you say, like, here we need legislation, and which are the areas where you say, no, this, we don't want to have legislation here, we really need to work on more promotional effort in order to solve the problems um, um, from the panel. Where do you see the necessity to really force people into certain structures, or where do you say, like, here, we need to take a more flexible approach? Yep. Um, again, uh, the Institute of Policy Studies uh, does quite a number of things. Uh, again, we, I work on longevity, uh, and, and this is clearly a very multifaceted uh, uh, issue. I'm not a HR practitioner. So I, can't, you know, I don't have the expertise to opine uh, on, on the areas where I think you've, you've, you've touched upon and, and many of the things that um, I really am not an expert in. Uh, however, I, I would say this. Um, you know, I think um, we can paint a lot of what we've discussed already um, and, and understand uh, that what we have in Singapore is, is to some extent, a, a generational issue. Many of our current older workers, uh, you know, those in their 60s uh, and, and older, um, grew up uh, in a very different Singapore. They had a very different educational uh, trajectory uh, and entry into the workforce. Uh, and, and all of that has, has meant that um, their, their life outcomes are very different to the cohort that is immediately after them. So, you know, maybe the conditions for older workers, if we think about this in a dynamic way, um, can change. And I think, you know, this is, this is where I think um, we can isolate, um, you know, some of our policies and say, well, okay, you know, this pertains to the, today's generation of older workers, um, and we can have um, policies, maybe even structured more uh, in terms of welfare, something like the Pioneer Generation Package, to understand that, that they are um, that generation that just, you know, missed out a little bit on Singapore's development, but, but actually have grounds for optimism and craft policies that are designed for the upcoming older worker, um, those in their 50s, 40s, that, that actually um, they, they, they have a different trajectory. Uh, and if we continue some of the initiatives that we've got and don't entrench ageist mindsets, I think um, that's quite a positive outcome. Already we've seen good results. Our average effective retirement age has been rising. Uh, there's no reason why that cannot continue with um, Singaporeans living longer and healthier. Any one final question? If, if not, um, I will just, okay, only one final one. Ladies or first, or lady comes first. Ho Kyok Chu from Human Capital Singapore. Thank you very much for sharing at the conceptual level what we should be doing about the older workers. Uh, I thought it would be good if we can start thinking about the action piece because at the end of the day, it's about how do we translate all these policies and thoughts that we have into actionable steps. And one of the observations that I have is that in a way, all the big things are fragmenting into smaller pieces. So big organizations that we have been talking about in this era of transformation will probably be reshaping, restructuring into smaller outfits and entities. And the older generation 
uh, that we are trying to bring back to the workforce or retain in the workforce will probably have to temper their aspirations with realism. The question really is, it is okay to dream to have aspirations, but have we thought about putting in place some resilience training, some um, programs or even some forums where we put in the employers or potential employers together with this group of people to have conversations so that they bring down the walls between them. You talk about last mile, I talk about the first mile. And I think the first mile is about that resilience in training, that sense of reality. I remember when I first started work, well, I started with a stat board, then CISA, and then I went to United Overseas Bank. One of the big factors in all the performance appraisal forms that we have was this sense of reality. And when we tested candidates, I was in charge of recruitment, I remember. One of the things that we always tested amongst the candidates who came for interview was whether that individual has a sense of reality. And I think sense of reality has to, is, is something that is, a, is an attribute or is a value system that should be embedded in everybody, irrespective of your age group. You, you can't take that, that attitude of the mindset that it's somebody else's problem. It all begins with you. You taking that first step to want to be realistic about things around you and start to shape your own mindset. The rest can come in to give you the support. Thank you. Nice. You just pretty much set the scene for the next topic, I think, shaping the future. So uh, before we close, we have three more minutes. Any last remark? No, 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 no more. Any last comment, remark from, from Diane? Um, I, I think I, I, if I just kind of recap perhaps uh, some of the points I, I, I made, right, which is number one, uh, I do not think we are going into an ap apocalyptic world where machines will take over um, uh, all our jobs. Second, um, I think it will boil down to skills and continuous reskilling for people of all ages, right? Uh, job redesign will need to come in partnership with that uh, skills training. And um, I am a believer that if everyone says talent is a true scarcity, then we should be optimistic because our older workers have some of the best experience, have some of the best attributes, and therefore companies should be very willing to bring them into their workforce. Thank you. Christopher? Um, message quite simple, really. Uh, the longevity payoff is huge uh, for individuals. Um, you know, this, this ability to work longer, um, you know, uh, is, 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 you know, it allows people to live uh, longer, but more fulfilled lives, and it leads to a, a huge improvement of welfare, not just for themselves, but also for their families. Uh, and this translates to a, a broader context, right? Um, you know, um, th there's this uh, untapped productive potential. If we, if we don't tap it, it's lost. Um, but if we do tap it, um, there's huge potential. Uh, it, you know, it makes a, a, a huge difference to our support ratios, our dependency ratios at a national level. So the, the longevity payoff is huge. I think we need some examples 
I think we will get more, uh, but, but you know, we'll t need to take those, um, those hard steps, but uh, small steps in the right direction will, 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 will underpin the uh, positive momentum. Thanks, Chris. Uh, allow me, as chairperson, to also maybe summarize and, and try to, 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 to provide some suggestion. I have three. The first, I think we can no longer use old solution for the problem we have today. I think, uh, you know, what was relevant 10, 15 years ago, uh, you know, that's, that's at least, I mean, relevant, the solution may no longer be the solution for what we see going forward. So a new approach, a new thinking, a new discussion around that. Second, to me, we need to define jobs differently. I think jobs historically have been defined from a task point of view, what work you do, as opposed to what output you give. Uh, and if we move to that output given, then the flexibility, I think, is, 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 is easier. Uh, for example, you know, in, in, again, in Maybank, when we, when we implemented the flexible work hours or flexible work uh, environment, uh, the challenge was around jobs that were task-orientated because you had to do that job. You can't go on flexible hours because you have to do those jobs. But output-driven, outcome-driven, it was a lot easier. So we need to really look at that. And the final thing, if I, if I could uh, say, is around what Christopher talked about is we need to look at life not in those three stages. Uh, not only from work to retirement, but throughout our life, you know, skills acquiring, uh, learning, uh, it's a lifelong thing. Uh, a question I ask uh, in Singapore universities today, how many older, forget about workers, how many older students do you have? You know, you look at uh, Western society, I think you'll find that the proportion of older uh, people going back to school, uh, it's actually quite high. Yeah? And there's always proud moments about them graduating with their children, and even some of them with their grandchildren. So I'll leave it at that. We'll run out of time. Thank you very much for your participation. Thank you, Christopher. Thank you, Diane. <laughs>